This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning. It is two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bronwyn Burton. Uh, my name's Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well on this cool, crispy, foggy Melbourne morning. Six degrees, says my car. Of separation. <laughs> uh, would yeah. you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would definitely. Yes. In fact, I reckon it's a bit lower. Yeah, I think so too. I thought that was a bit optimistic. Yeah. And I like the kind of Christmas effect on the windows this morning. Yeah. It was, you know, like, yeah, we get spray on Christmas and you can do that. <laughs> but that was there naturally on the window this morning, looking out at the sunrise. Hey, thank you, Tim. And thank you, Andrew. Andrew wasn't here by the time I got in. Andrew Minga for Soulful Bits. Um, live from Triple um, R, unless it was a recorded live. Tim's looking at us quizzically and shaking his head no. It was live. It was live. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Wonderful as always. Our uh, today's program, we're having. We're going to Queenscliff. We are. Start off. What what better thing? Well, to actually, do? no. Queenscliff is coming to us. Yes, on a wintry, cold morning. Bonnie Dalton is the artistic director of the inaugural Low Light Festival, and that's coming up shortly. And she's going to come in and talk to us about what the Low Light Festival is all about. Low light, as in, um, well, I guess you had Bonnie will tell us, but I'm, I'm thinking low light as in. Winter time, midwinter, yep, all of that stuff. So I'm waving my hands in the air. <laughs> Ken can see. Ken, Ken, or is it Ken talk? Kent, <laughs> get on the mic, Kent. <laughs> uh, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Otherwise known as Doctor Panelbetter. Bro, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah you, got, you got heaps of names. Mm, yeah, 
Yeah, some of them are even polite. <laughs> That's right. So, thank you, Kent. I, I was going to get you on the mic. I've been planning on doing that for a long time. Um, you can catch Kent all throughout Sunday morning programming <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Uh, anyway, so Bonnie is going to be talking to us about the Low Light Festival and celebrating all the great things that happen in winter in a coastal town because that's what this is all about. It sure is. Yeah. We're then going to cross to, I believe, the Mornington Peninsula. I'm not sure where he's going to be, but AJ from Dive to is going to be bringing us an update on the spider crabs. That are going off. Well, they were in a strange twist. In a... Tr- it looks like Too the party tall. looks like the party might be all over. Okay, they've all packed up and headed off. Yeah, and this is this is the great thing about the spider crabs. They just are quite unpredictable. Well, they're predictable in that we know that they're going to come and do their thing and then leave, but we never really know when. So there's been a huge amount of excitement over the last couple of weeks about bit by bit the spider crabs are all coming to the party. A bit like one of those massive uni balls that we used to go to. I don't think they do them anymore, but you know, <laughs> you get like 10,000 people rocking up. Yeah. Let's not go back to those days. <laughs> Actually, there's a few parallels here. Are you bring back bad memories now, Bron. the spider crabs molt and shed their outer linings and then they all go home. So those were the days. And end up at the Waterside Hotel. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's where the spider crabs They're all there. Gone. That's right. They're at King Street. <laughs> That'd be appropriate. It's an appropriately named pub too. Anyway, for spider crabs. So we're going to talk to AJ about that. Then we're crossing from the Mornington Peninsula across to Cape Shank where Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia is going to be talking to us about... He was in only a couple of weeks ago, but there's been all sorts of whale-related news this week. Recent whale sightings in our bay. Oh, Frankston. How awesome. Yeah. I'm so jealous. Oliver's Hill. Stand on Oliver's Hill and one has seen... A couple of frolicking humpbacks. Who'd have thunk it? (laughs) So if you saw them, lucky you. Um, We've also had, we've got an update um, on the sad situation of the pygmy sperm whale which washed up just off Jawbone Marine Sanctuary a couple of weeks ago. So Dave's going to talk to us all about that, what happened through that autopsy of that whale. And then Dr Beach. Uh, Yeah, then at the end, if we have time, I'm going to talk about an article which was in the conversation, but that alludes to a paper which was published um, very, very recently, just this week in Aquatic Conservation, and this comes from... Well, we've, we've talked about the Reef Life Survey on this program several times, and this is Citizen Science, a great example of Citizen Science, and it's led by people... Um, well, chiefly Graham Edgar at the University of Tasmania has set this up, and this is where people, divers, get out there, they get trained, and they do transects in the water in all sorts of reefs, not just coral reefs, but all the reefs, rocky reefs, which we are blessed with in this country, and do surveys. They're trained to do proper surveys, proper get gather proper scientific usable data on the number of fishes that they see. All sorts of things, invertebrates, seaweeds, and, you know, your eastern moorwong, jackass moorwong and things like that. Um, these data have now come in and they have published a paper showing that there has been a very, very significant decline in the fisheries, well, in, in the large fish biomass in the last 10 years of about a third, 33%, which matches pretty nicely what happens or what we've been seeing in reduced take rates from um, from our fisheries. And they're mm. talking about how this is showing that, well, pointing out the bleeding obvious, that our fisheries are in decline and that we need to, as we approach, well, as the government's trying to think about more marine parks, well, they're not thinking about it very hard, mm. that we should, you know, be shoving more in there. Otherwise, our fisheries are going to continue this rapid decline and it is quite alarming. 
And that's the real issue, isn't it, with marine parks, that they're, they're just still considered as an optional extra and a nice to have. Yeah, you know? that's right. In, in kind of what we, we might call residual areas where there's no one fishing at the moment. So let, let's shove them off somewhere else. Which speaks volumes about value, doesn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's what we did on land and now we're doing it in the water. Mm. All right, well... So I'm going to talk around that paper. Excellent. Yeah. How about some weather? How about some weather? Well, it's foggy and chilly outside. It's about five degrees and uh, it's probably up to about six. Yeah, minimum six. It's going to be 16 today, mostly sunny. It's going to be a beautiful day. Um, that's actually, I was reading for tomorrow, which is Monday. But today's going to be 15 degrees. Yeah, fine. Tomorrow, sunny. 16 degrees, mostly sunny. On Tuesday, it's going to be a little bit of rain, not much, just a couple of millimetres and 14 degrees. Uh, Wednesday, 8 degrees in the morning, 15, um, tiny bit of rain. Yeah, little bits of rain later on in the week, not a lot, um, with minimums around 8 or 9 degrees and maximums at around 15 degrees. So we're moving into winter. It's a beautiful thing. I love winter in this town. Me too. Yeah. Um, and Tide times? Tide times. At Point Lonsdale, it's going to be high tide at 10 to 8, so it was about just over an hour ago. And low tide at Point Lonsdale, their heads will be at 101 this afternoon, and that's a tide of 0.78 metres if you are considering heading out on the water. Quite a few people are today. Um, Terry Allen, our in-house dive reporter, has sent through uh, a spectacular photo from the heads and, as she said, dead calm and is like glass on the Ace. water this morning. Nice one. So, I'm heading down to Barwon Heads after this. Are you? Yeah. For this long weekend. Mm-hmm. Lucky you. Hey, um, whether we might play a track. Oh, actually, one thing I wanted to mention quickly. Sorry, Kent. <laughs> Got you on your toes. Um, this is something that came out a couple of weeks ago and, uh, well, just over a week ago, uh, about the slaughter of 122 mother whales. I don't know if you've heard about this. No, so I did this, not. This was some information that came through the International Whaling Commission Scientific Committee meeting, which took place in May. Um, and just looking at some figures showing 122 whale mothers were slaughtered as part of the Japanese government's illegal Antarctic whale hunt. I'm reading from their press release. Um, so Sea Shepherd coming out in our understandable outrage, as are we all. So in total, the figures that they've released were 333 protected minke whales, and we say protected because of the location of where they were in, uh, in um, sanctuary waters. In the Southern Ocean. Yes. 122 of them were um, pregnant females. So as they say, and rightfully so, in reality, 455 whales, if you include the um, the, offspr- the, the unborn, the unborns, yeah. uh, were taken from the ocean. So we've been trying to get Sea Shepherd on to talk to us about that. We've just, it's been a matter of logistics, having somebody available uh, on a Sunday morning. We'll continue to, uh, to strive to have su- someone from Sea Shepherd on to talk more about this and uh, where things go next. Yep. Good on you, Sea Shepherd. They do incredible work. Keeping us all informed of what is happening. That's right, and uh, great advocacy as well. All right, let's play some music, and then we're going to be joined in studio by Bonnie Dalton, Artistic Director of Low Light Festival, uh, and one of the featured artists at the Low Light Festival is Justin Towns Earl. How wonderful. And so here is a track from him. It's called Let the Waters Rise.
waters rise Wash this town into the sea Let the waters rise And find my lover where she sleeps Cause I don't know where she is Or what company she keeps All I know is where she should be So let the waters rise And bring her home to me Let the waters rise I'm too tired now for searching Let the waters rise and hide the tears I've cried for that woman Cause it just isn't fair that she's out there having fun When I'm stuck here and having none So let the waters rise And bring me my only one Centre presents The Next Chapter, a new writer's scheme aiming to elevate Australian stories that aren't being published and nurture a new generation of diverse writers. With generous grants for 10 emerging writers plus mentors to work with them over 12 months and beyond, The Next Chapter gives aspiring writers the time, support and space they need to develop their work. Applications now open until Friday, July 13. Visit wheelerscentre.com forward slash the next chapter for application details. The Wheeler Centre, sponsoring Triple R. The Williamstown Literary Festival is back with 80 writers and performers across 51 events. Join some of Australia's finest writers such as Andy Griffiths, Jacqueline Harvey, Justin Hazelwood, John Marsden, Alice Pung, Stan Yaramanua, and Martin Flanagan as they celebrate 15 years of Willie Litfest, June 16 and 17, at the Williamstown Town Hall. For tickets and the full program, see willylitfest.org.au. Triple R sponsors. It is quarter past nine and you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And just before those announcements, that was Justin Towns Earl with Let the Waters Rise, taken from Yuma. He's one of the featured artists at an upcoming festival, which is going to be taking place over the next few weeks as we enter the darkest patch of winter. 
The first ever Low Light Festival will be launched in Queenscliff, bringing together some amazing international and local arts, music and culinary talents in a month-long celebration. Over four weekends, the Low Light Festival offers up music, an incredible curated film program, gin and whiskey tastings, heritage walks, progressive dinners and unmissable mind-blowing visual art installations. To tell us more, we welcome Festival Artistic Director Bonnie Dalton. Good morning, Bonnie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. I'll just get you to come in a little bit closer to your mic. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So I've just mentioned an incredible, like, how, who wouldn't want to go? I'll just go through that again. Live music, curated film program, gin and whiskey tastings, heritage walks, progressive dinners and art installations. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. How did this all come about? Um, it's really been, I think, on the boil for a couple of years. There's a core group of locals in Queenscliff who had noticed that things had got a little quiet around winter, um, but that there's a lot going on and really wanted to kind of put together something that would bring people from all over to come and experience Queenscliff in winter. It is just such a beautiful place. And um, and as I said, there is a lot going on. So we sort of pulled it all together into a four weekend um, festival. And yeah, it's really exciting just to see what's coming together and it's been I guess um, you know as far as artistic direction goes it was probably an easier job than many because a lot of it has been really um, from the community themselves so lots of local businesses have kind of come together with ideas the local galleries are all putting on incredible exhibitions so really for me it was just um, oh you guys are already doing this fantastic Uh, let's put this together and then added a few extra little sprinkles of um, extra things. So yeah, it's been it's been a great process to put it all together. The thing that piqued my interest immediately was progressive dinners. Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> what a great idea. I, I, I get these images of people walking down the main street of Queenscliff, yeah. you know, going to one place, then we go to the next one. And that's exactly what's going to be happening. It's absolutely fantastic. It's something that um, a few of the businesses had mentioned that they had been interested in maybe working with each other. So kind of just put them in a room together and they came up with this fantastic idea that, yeah, the first one's already sold out, so they've had to put another one on and they've tried to do a different path so that they don't kind of clash in any way um, and end up all at the same place at the same time. But yeah, that's literally what's going to happen. So kind of, we really love the idea too that it's a winter festival. We wanted people to get cold before they get warm again. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, you have your gorgeous entree and then go back out into the cold night air of the harbour, um, you know, walk down the street and then duck in somewhere else for main course is fantastic. And that's a, it's beautifully set up for that, isn't it? Because it, almost everything is in that main street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah from, from the harbour around to um, the main street there. And we've got a couple of things in Point Lonsdale as well, which is going to be really great. People don't have to walk from Queenscliff to Point Lonsdale for no, dessert or anything, do they? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm still sticking with that. I'm getting images of fondue parties and you know, at low light, you know, winter, it'd be fantastic. Is, is there a fondue on the Progressive There actually, dinner? there's not a fondue, oh, but, um, you know, if you want to get kind of a bit of a 70s vibe, I'm sure we can figure something <laughs> out. Okay, a bit of orange down there. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we just uh, heard from Justin Townsville, who's one of your feature acts. Mm-hmm. Who else have you got in your music lineup? So, playing with Justin Townsville will be the wonderful Fraser A. Gorman. Um, we've also got All Our Exes Live in Texas, mm. uh, which will be fantastic. And they'll be ably supported by the Little Stevies. And the Little Stevies will then uh, stick around 
to play a kids' show as the Teeny Tiny Stevies a couple of days later. <laughs> so, yeah, we sort of got two for the price of one with those fantastic girls. There's, um, there's also the Blues Train have put on uh, some Sunday sessions, free sessions. The train is actually grounded for winter. They do some maintenance. So they've gone and spoken to a bunch of great venues around town and said, what about if we put on some of our favourites? So that's going to be another really lovely aspect, get in by the fire and listen to Blues. Bonnie, where's the, the, the stage? Is there a main stage? I'm picturing Queenscliff with the, with the nice grassy bit. There's not a main stage as such where, where really it's all about kind of going in. Because it's going for a month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so so the, the music will be all over. Um, the one thing that will be every weekend is our screening of uh, Life in the Undergrowth, which is this beautiful film from the Iceland Dance Company, and that's going to be projected onto the fort walls and it's just going to look fantastic. There's an original soundtrack for that um, from Sigaross. So, and this is an Australian premiere, which we're really excited about. It was screened last December for the first time at Sigaross's own festival in Reykjavik. So we know that it works in the context of being really cold outside. So you know, <laughs> it comparatively, it's probably quite balmy in Queenscliff. <laughs> <laughs> and that experience of being in the cold, tell, talk us through it. What is it? Yeah, so it's something that we thought was really important about a winter festival is that idea that, you know, you are experiencing the elements. And so that's why we've also kind of encouraging people to go on a bit of a coastal walk, you know, get out onto the beach. And, um, I mean, if you're brave, go out on that pier because I went there in summer and it was cold already. So really rug up and, and really experience that that outdoor um, coastal experience and then scurry back inside where there's fires on in pretty much every other building. <sighs> It's that it's that really interesting contrast, isn't there? And it's a really huge polar contrast between uh, life in a coastal town in the peak of summer, where there are literally thousands of people, mm-hmm. and you can't get a car park, and people have got short tempers, and it's hot, and 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 then this complete polar opposite yep. end, where it's quiet and and quite, it's just beautiful. Yeah, and I, I think there's something that's quite consistent no matter where you go. Probably more so once you kind of get into that temperate environment where there is that big contrast between summer and winter. Mm-hmm. Maybe less so in Queensland. I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time in Queensland, but where it's, you know, that whole beautiful one yeah. day perfect, the next thing. It's consistent all year round, but you, you get that huge contrast down south. Oh, absolutely. That's right. The the idea that people, you know, the summer kind of season is pretty well worked out. There's, you know, an ice cream shop on every corner. That whole thing of going to the beach in summer is so obvious, but to really go there in winter is something very, very special and very different. And I think, you know, just talking to people, that idea of really marking seasons is something that kind of is, I think, something that people want to do. It's really easy to just the whole year goes by and, you know, you kind of don't necessarily take note, but it's lovely to actually experience the seasons and, you know, whether it's going and kicking around some autumn leaves or getting really, really cold at the beach in winter, um, you know, it's lovely. Now, you mentioned the beach and uh, I believe you've got some seal watching options as well. We do. So one of the things that we wanted to do as well with this is obviously program some amazing art and food and wine and beautiful indoor experiences, but also, you know, to come down to Queenscliff to, to drive an hour and a half, you want to really experience what else there is down there that you can't get anywhere else. 
else. And when we were talking to the guys from um, Dolphin Swim, they, they said that they don't normally do a lot over winter for obvious reasons and they asked if they thought that people would want to get in the water and go for a swim and I thought, if they're anything like me, probably not. But um, So they've put on some extra uh, boats so you can go out and watch the Australian fur seals. And one thing I didn't know was that winter is apparently a really, really great time to see them, that they're particularly active and, you know, it's something I guess quite unique about, um, you know, an arts festival where you can spend the evening reading books or listening to music or watching films and then get up in the morning and go play with some seals. Yeah, and it's also this time of the year is typically... It can, well, typically the water can be usually, <laughs> I, I, I hate doing absolutes, maybe, maybe. <laughs> often, let's go with often, often the water is really calm and particularly for those who are prone to seasickness, mm-hmm. we kind of tend to associate summer with the time to be out there on the water, but it can be really windy, especially January is typically really windy. Um but this time of the year, it's so calm mm. and so still, and we know that it's like that out there today. We've already seen photos coming through. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a that whole quiet beauty that I was talking about on the land definitely applies out in the water as well. Yeah, I'm really excited about getting out there and and you know seeing the seals, but also just being out in that in that space. Excellent. Uh, can't let you go before we talk about two things. One is the art exhibition. So can you talk us through some of your featured artists? Yeah. So. Um, there's one of the artists that I'm really excited about seeing is um, Katrin Koenig. So she is an incredible photographer who has spent some time down in Queenscliff recently. We commissioned her to do an exhibition and to really show Queenscliff in a very different way. So she went down there and, you know, there's obviously our Instagram is full of beautiful photos of the, the lighthouses and, you know, all the usual kind of heritage buildings that you see when you or that you associate with Queenscliff. And Katrin's gone down there and just seen something totally different and she's photographed that and the images are incredible so that'll be on at the salt gallery um, also at the salt gallery is a beautiful exhibition of um, some incredible painters under the uh, the title of paint so um I didn't need my notes for that one. Um, <laughs> and the Sea View Gallery has also got a range of different exhibitions across that time. And then the Queenscliff um, Gallery and Workshop has a Graham Peebles solo uh, retrospective, which will be really, really incredible. And the last thing I want to ask you about, we talked about some of the culinary delights you have. Mm-hmm. High tea on the high seas. Yes. What's that all about? So the Sea Road Ferries have got have put together a really beautiful, they've got two kind of culinary events during the festival. One is the high tea on high seas, um, which is pretty much what it says on the box. Uh, But the views that you get on that run, particularly, as you said, in winter when it's really calm and, you know, there's just so much out there. So that'll be really exciting to enjoy with your petit fours. (laughs) And then they're also doing a captain's um, lunch. So um, more beautiful kind of curated chef dinners and meals. Um, we're, we're also hosting a really exciting event on the 30th of June, which is with a group called Private Dining Room. And they've got two incredible young chefs um, to come down to a secret location. So if you book in with them, you'll get a text message on the day and be told where in Queenscliff um, that you'll be enjoying a gorgeous uh, degustation dinner with matched wines. Fantastic. Nice one. Excellent. Where can people go for more information? For more information, they can go to lowlightqueenscliff.com.au. There's programs around as well um, or jump on Facebook. Fantastic. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. 
Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you down there. Good luck with the festival. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Bonnie Dalton, Artistic Director of Low Light Festival in Queenscliff, coming up in a couple of weeks' time. It's 9.27. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. We're going to listen to a couple of station announcements. Then we're going to cross to AJ for a report on the spider crabs. The Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick and the Cross Art Project present a widening gap, the intervention 10 years on. Curated by Joe Holder and Dion Mundine, the exhibition features over 20 Aboriginal and allied artists responding to the ongoing impact of the intervention and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. A widening gap, the intervention 10 years on, running now until July 8th. The Coonahan Gallery, Triple R Sponsors. To celebrate 20 years of helping kids in need, the Mirabelle Foundation is hosting a fundraising night of nights with a star-studded lineup featuring Paul Kelly, Ross Wilson, Deborah Conway, Mark Seymour, Vicar and Linda Bull, Davy Lane, Dave Larkin, Claire Bowditch, Benny Walker and more. Friday, July 6th at the Prince in St Kilda. Tickets on sale now from the Prince Bandroom website and Oztix. A Triple R community service announcement. Heltman Award-winning cabaret icon Robin Archer returns to Art Centre Melbourne with Dancing on the Volcano, a darkly humorous and satirical journey through Berlin cabaret of the 20s and 30s, featuring a hearty dose of Brecht, Weil, Eisler, Hollander and more. Dancing on the Volcano, July 9 to 11. Bookings at artscentremelbourne.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. It's 9.28, coming up to 9.29, and you're listening to Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. We're now crossing to speak with AJ from Dive to You to get an update on those spider crabs. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, guys. How are we? Good. How are you? Very well. Oh, very well, thank you. <laughs> now, spider crabs. Thanks for um, thanks for catching up with us uh, about this as well, because there's been, it's been what we talked at the start of the show about this uh, being a an ongoing phenomenon. It happens every single year, and there's all this anticipation about when the spider crabs are going to arrive. What's going on with them? Well, they're just about finished up now. <laughs> I, there's a lot. <laughs> I heard your um, intro uh, at the start of the show where you're talking about a big college scene. It's like a uh, spider crab spring break. They all come, they get it all, you know, they shed off and then they all disappear. And um, It's pretty much happened now that the winter full moon has come through. Um, so now there's just basically um, carcasses everywhere. I was going to ask about that because we it's it's so exciting. The footage that's come through this week has just been incredible, watching all these spider crabs molt and I, I guess because people are getting down there with their GoPros and their, you know, spectacular um, setups with the, for their stills photography too, but there's been some footage of the spider crabs actually molting. You can see them actually crawling out of their shells. We're talking tens of thousands of these things and what happens to the shells? Is it just kind of like a bit of an old... Um, like an old car yard, an old graveyard of all these spider crab shells? <laughs> oh, like everything in the ocean, it all gets consumed. But all those little tiny bugs that are crawling around in the sand, it's all food supply for them. So the migration, as much as uh, it is a spectacle for us, it's a vital food source for the bay. So um, the stingrays, if you've seen all those footage of the big, beautiful stingrays coming through like magic carpet and just chomping up all the nice shells, uh, you'll get seals, you'll get birds, anything uh, that can basically consume it, it will. And, yeah, and the rest is left to all the bugs. 
Uh, there's some spectacular footage, and I'll, I'll check with PT. I'm sure she'll be fine with us to use this um, this what has almost become an iconic image in a week of uh, a huge ray actually consuming one of these spider crabs and the ray sort of lifted itself up off the sand, off the benthos, and the crab's actually halfway into its mouth. It's absolutely spectacular. Have you seen much of that yourself? You get a lot of... um well, Peachy's spent so much time in the water. She's an absolute champion for the uh, for the crabs and all things Port Phillip. And to see uh, those photos come out, like you really do get rewarded with the time that you spend uh, in the water. And to be honest, I think this year we've re- like the spider crab phenomenon has just gone crazy. Like we've got a lot of media in previous years, but this year everyone actually got in for themselves. And if you go to that Spider Crabs Melbourne Facebook page, you'll see so many awesome photos and videos and little film people have cut together. And you started to get some professionals to come in and take some photos. And then PT puts a photo like that and then just blows everyone out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And look, and all credit to um, other photographers as well. And I know I'm giving PT a huge rap because I love yeah. what she does, but there are some, there's some amazing footage out there as well. So is the party over, AJ? Have they all gone home? It is pretty much. It's a mass exodus. If you're nice and soft and squishy uh, and there's predators flying around, you are certainly not going to be hanging out. So it's straight into the channel off the back of Blagari and they'll be heading straight back out the heads to uh, to re-camouflage themselves um, with weed and sponge and all the sorts. And we just got to wait for them to come back next year. Exactly. Wait, wait for the winter migration next year. So if you look at your lunar calendars and look ahead, I believe it's going to be uh, mid-May, I think it's a full moon, and then maybe mid-June. Um, so they're about, that's when you can kind of bank on uh, all the crabs arriving. We get this little mini-migration that happens in uh, in Marchish. Um, they're the confused crabs. Uh, <laughs> but the rest of them come later. There's always that little drum roll that happens and everyone gets real excited and, and then it's like, oh, got to wait. <laughs> That's fantastic, AJ. It's Dr Beach here. I, I didn't realise that we knew quite so well we could predict when the migrations were going to be. Well, it's mostly just been through keen swimmers and divers and previous year's observations. It's always turned out that we, uh, we're starting to get that little mini-migration and it really is a winter molt, so... Um, and, and and this year it's been proven as well. As soon as you hit that full moon, um, it seems to be through our observation that's when uh, you can kind of bank on most of them um, congregating. The beauty of it this year is it was so close to Blagari Pier. Normally, you you know you've got boats and whatnot having to come off and trawl uh, somewhere between Blagari and Rye. Um, but we had some mass molting right underneath the diving pontoon where you get in at 1.5 metres deep. It's, it was just incredible. So, again, just for people who might be new to the spider crab migration, they're coming in from outside of the bay into the bay, presumably because it's a nice protected area, and they all clump together and molt for protection, you know, safety in numbers. Is that, is that the right interpretation of this? Yeah, that's what, that's what we believe. We really don't know exactly where they come from. Um, like through diving along Lonsdale Wall and out through the heads and along the coastline, you'll see them scattered um, in non-molting season, very camouflaged, and they all congregate en masse and come up to the shallows. Um, it, it purely is a, a matter of safety in numbers. So when you've got all your predators swimming around, uh, just like a big sardine bait ball, you're hoping that uh, someone else gets eaten and not you. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that is exactly the concept. Hey, just while we've got you there, AJ, we'll just hit you up for a quick dive report. Um, we know you, uh, you're not diving today, are you? No, I'm, I'm dry today. I've been six out of seven days in the water, <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to dry out. <laughs> 
Where would you recommend people go for a dive? Because uh, Terry Allen sent through a photo earlier and um, out through the heads, it was like glass. Uh, where would you recommend people go today if they want to go and get wet? I think uh, with with such a beautiful, um, very soft low, I think maybe eight knot northerly winds, uh, boat diving this weekend is going to be incredible. Uh, water clarity is pretty good as well. So if you're if you're thinking about getting in some boat diving before um, you know, proper winter hits, <laughs> it's pretty much hit us today or the last couple of days. Uh, I would recommend that. Um, shore diving wise, because of the nice northerlies, uh, I'd say go out and explore Ricketts Point uh, and Jawbone and things like that. You get in there when the water's nice and flat and calm. It's, it's really they are very pretty dive sites and they don't get a lot of attention. Uh, so it's a perfect uh, wind direction and, and calmness for that. Brilliant. Thanks so much, AJ. Uh, it's been great talking to you and we'll lure you into the studio again one of these days. Sounds fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for that. <laughs> See you guys. See, See ya. Bye for now. AJ there from Dive to You giving us an update on the spider crabs. On the great annual spider crab migration. Indeed. It is coming up to 24 minutes to 10 and you're listening to Radio Marinara and shortly we're going to be speaking with Dave Donnelly about what's been going on with whales in the bay and outside the bay. We've been talking about spider crabs and they're all gone now, so I want to play this track for all you divers out there and for the crabs themselves. Here's a bit of uh, Violent Femmes.
Lost and Found Market is moving to Fitzroy. The East Brunswick Market has to be cleared out, so there's lots of vintage fashion, furniture, art, vinyl and bric-a-brac bargains over the next few weekends. See the website for more information and store opportunities at their new location in the heart of Fitzroy. Lost and Found Market, proud Triple R sponsors. It is coming up to 20 to 10 and you are listening to Triple R. Radio Marinara is the name of this program. The show about all things wet and salty. Indeed. You're with Dr Beach and Bron and now joining us on the phone, live from Cape Shank, is manager of Killer Whales Australia, Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron. Good morning, Dr Beach. How are you going, Dave? Oh, very, very well today. It's a beautiful day out here. Now, you were only in the studio a couple of weeks ago, but we felt compelled to catch up with you again because of the amount of news that relating to whales that's happened um, this week. So a couple of, uh, couple of sightings. Uh, this is the one that's grabbing everyone's attention. A couple of humpbacks filmed frolicking off Frankston. What do we know about them? Wow. Well, we know that they were there, that's for sure. Uh, we had a lot of sighting reports from um, many of our uh, wonderful citizen scientists around the bay. Um, it all started at Queenscliff and progressed from there from the 4th of June and then right through to about the 7th of June. These, uh, what we think, are the, probably the same group of animals moving throughout the bay. And they went right up as far as Sandringham and back down through Frankston, Seaford, Mount Eliza, Dramana and then back to Sorrento and then presumably out of the heads. So this was a, a small pod of humpbacks, was it? Yes, it was, uh, Dr Beach. We had at least two, but we think there was three animals involved. But uh, quite often with humpbacks, you'll have individuals leaving and rejoining the group. So some sightings were of two animals, some sightings were of three, but we don't believe there was more than three. So it was, uh, it was quite exciting for everybody along the coast. Oh, yeah, indeed. And how rare is this? I mean, when was the last time we had humpbacks in the bay? Uh, the last time we had them in, we had one in the bay very, very early in the season, back in March. Um, we would call that an anomaly in the in the uh, the way these animals move. It was quite a young animal and stayed for only a few hours and then uh, was lost sight of. But um, from this point onwards, the Queen's birthday weekend, we expect that we'll have several more reports from Port Phillip uh, and certainly a lot of reports from the open coast and around Phillip Island. Uh, the fact that they've come so far north, is that something that's really quite... I, I don't recall in all the years that I've been broadcasting that we have had a humpback sighting that far north into the bay. Occasionally we see them close to the heads, but that's a, Sandringham's a long way into the bay. Yeah, and, you know, we have had them as far up as the mouth of the Yarra River uh, around Williamstown. Quite famously last year, uh, the police vessel again uh, grabbed the footage, uh, as it was the case last week, uh, and they were off Williamstown with uh, two humpback whales behaving in a very similar manner to that footage that's been circulating recently with the whales sticking close to the boat and even nudging the boat from time to time. Maybe I was away that weekend. I, I know, I'm, I'm just sitting here aghast, like off Williamstown, <laughs> perhaps because I don't get involved in social media, but it's just it's all just passed me by. Hey, um, now... For people out there on the water, this is an important question, Dave, um, because sometimes people do the wrong thing and they don't mean to do the wrong thing. What are the rules about approaching whales if you're on board a boat or on a jet ski? Yeah, this is really important, Bron, um, and it's something that has cropped up in the last week or so with um, people either unaware of the regulations or aware and discarding the regulations. So it's really important to remember that there are state government regulations under the Wildlife Act which don't which permit you, oh, sorry, do not permit you from approaching a whale closer than 200 metres in a recre recreational vessel or a commercial vessel without a permit, and it's 300 metres for a jet ski. And 
one other thing we've had a lot of reports of, or some reports of, is people flying drones over the whales this past week, particularly off the uh, Mornington area. Now, the regulations for drones are the same as they are for other aircraft, which is 500 metres uh, minimum height distance above a whale or distance um, on an angle from a whale. So uh, if people could remember that, that would be really, really helpful because we are getting a lot of reports of people approaching these animals and disrupting their behaviour. And the bottom line is if you don't know... Well, don't go. Like if you, if, you, if you don't know, if you, do, I don't know. There you go. I've invented something. That's a new slogan. <laughs> yeah. Exercise but, caution. If you, yeah, if, if right. you don't know what the regs are, um, then just stay way, 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 way back. But five hundred meters—that's interesting for a drone, Dave. So, um, if you don't I, know how far yeah, away five hundred. Sorry? So that's partly to do with the technology advancements uh, exceeding the, um, the regulations at the moment. So in time, perhaps the regulations might catch up with technology, and, uh, but that'll take some time and some investigation. Uh, we, we do know that drones don't have the same sort of effect as aircraft, as larger aircraft, but uh, the, the fact still remains that the regulations are in place for a purpose, and people need to remember that. And, and like you said, Dr. Birch, it really is just a case of making sure that you steer clear, and those regs are in place for the animals and for the welfare of the vessel operators, because these are big animals. And uh, if you uh, annoy one enough, it could easily flip a boat, and uh, we don't want that happening. Now, there's also been some media this week about uh, the pygmy sperm whale washed up near Jawbone Marine Sanctuary and some statements made from vets about plastic and kelp being found in its stomach and being the cause of its death. Do you know any more about this? Unfortunately not, Bron. Um, we, we know nothing more than what's been in, uh, reported in the social media. Um, I will point out right now that we, uh, we're not 100% sure of that species just yet, but um, we, we'll trust that, that that's correct for now, which is pygmy sperm whale. There is a, another species called dwarf sperm whale, which looks very, very similar and distinguishable by the shape of the dorsal fin and number of teeth as the, the key diagnostics there. As far as what's in its stomach, you know, plastics are a bad thing and we, we all know that and there's a lot of campaigns out there to remove plastics from the ocean and prevent them from getting into the ocean in the first place, which is absolutely top of the pile in terms of things we need to consider. But we also need to consider the ecology that these animals uh, are part of, the, the ecosystem that they live in. Why, why did they eat the plastic is my question. I mean, this, was it simply a mistake or was it that the animal was so sick that it was going to start eating anything else it could? Because you could equally hold the kelp accountable mm. uh, because that's not part of their natural diet either. So uh, there was an event a few years ago where several uh, dolphins across the, coast of, across the east coast of Australia all washed up dead and all had tunicates, tunics in their uh, stomach. And so that's not a normal part of their diet. No, so tunicates... Tunicates, that's correct. Yeah, so yeah. tunicates, um, otherwise known as sea squirts. So conjavoy, the, the sort of... Yeah. Um, intertidal or just shallow subtitle animals. They don't look like animals, but uh, animals that um, live on the rocks. Really, as you say, not a normal part of a dolphin diet. Correct. And and to, to us, there's something wrong with the the ecology of the, the animals and their, their environment, um, whether it's a downfall or downturn in their normal prey item, which in, in the case of this species was squid, and they've turned to an alternative who knows? But I think it's a question worth asking. We, it's easy to jump to the, the conclusion that plastics killed this animal, but perhaps there's something more sinister in the background which, which applies to the whole planet and to us as ocean users. Now, um, just before we let you go, uh, the Whale Festival is coming up. This is the one at Phillip Island. Um, and when you were in a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that. Do we have any more information for our listeners yet who might want to just maybe pop the date in their calendars? 
Yes, the dates are confirmed for the 6th to the 8th of July. It's at the Phillip Island Cultural Centre on Phillip Island. Um, and with regards to that, there's a whole lot of activities going on around the island, which will all be made available, I believe, this week. The program goes up on our Island Wales Facebook page, which will be shared on the Two Bays Whale Project page also. And, of course, we're going to come into the studio and have a chat about it in a few weeks' time. Excellent. So on the 24th of June, also Community Cup Day. So be prepared, Dave. You're going to come into a sea of red and white and enormous <laughs> Community Cup fever here in the Triple R studios. So um, I will have my head in two places on that day, but it'll be great to have you come in. And uh, just before we let you go, uh, I believe you've had a whale sighting this morning. We have just a few minutes ago, actually. So there's a whale currently uh, moving east from Cunha Beach on the back beaches at the Mornington Peninsula. We're yet to get set eyes on that one. So as soon as we do, we'll, we'll certainly put a species up on the uh, Facebook page. But if people are on the peninsula in this beautiful weather, like to catch a glimpse of a whale, just position yourself somewhere east of Cunha Beach and you're in with the show. Dave, and just finally before you go, what, can, what, what other species that we can expect to see? So we've had humpback in the bay. Southern right, might this one be? Uh, it could be. Um, I'm not 100% sure just yet. I haven't laid eyes on it myself, but we've got people, our beautiful citizen scientists again, out with yeah. the cameras photographing this animal, so hopefully we'll know soon. But yes, you're right, Dr Beach, uh, southern right whales have been around, and certainly last week there was a pair off Sunderland's Beach in on Phillip Island. Less frequent than the humpbacks, but a real joy to see and fantastic to see these animals um, still coming back to the Victorian coastline after being devastated by commercial whaling. And we've seen that, that so the one in Williamstown, the north of the bay, was a pygmy whale. Um, what, other, what other species are there that we see in these areas? Um, well, that's an anomaly, that one, of course. Uh, that's about 100 kilometres out of its uh, normal, or what we believe to be its normal range. Uh, it's normally a continental shelf and beyond type species. Uh, we, we occasionally get minke whales in our waters. Um, we also get blue whales. We had a fin whale last year, and uh, killer whales are regular but infrequent. Cool. Excellent. Uh, okay, we're going to let you go. Are you actually going to go out and check this whale out for yourself, Dave, or are you going to just wait for the reports to come in? Oh, I'm going to do both, I think, Bron. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, we'll keep in touch with you during the week and uh, get some more information on that and maybe report back for our listeners next week. Wonderful stuff. Thanks for having me on the show again. Oh, always a pleasure. We'll catch you live in the studio in two weeks' time. Thanks a lot, Bron. Thanks, Thanks Dave. See, See you. Dave. Bye-bye. Bye. Dave Donnelly there, Killer Whales Australia manager. So much going on. There is, and it's just so... I'm just getting these beautiful images in my mind of not only these animals deep inside the bay, but now you're off Cape Chank as well, which is where we see them in the oceans. But it's it's just fantastic. It's gold. It is. It's, it's amazing. Ten minutes to ten. This is Radio Marinara on 3RRR and we're going to hear a track now playing this one for Kath down in Balnaring. Uh, if you're down that way, this is for you as well. This is uh, Paula Fuga and uh, Winter Swell Blues.
Now in its final days, Heidi Museum of Modern Art presents the photographs of Diane Arbus in an exhibition that showcases one of the most impressive collections of her work in the world. An iconic 20th century photographer, Diane Arbus is best known for her confronting portraits of people on the fringes of society. The exhibition also includes famous images by Lisette Modell, Walker Evans, Ouija and William Eggleston. Diane Arbus, American Portraits, must end June 17. Heidi Museum of Modern Art, Triple R Sponsors. Dr Beach. Well, well welcome back to Radio Maranahara. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am Dr Beach and you're Bron Burton. Sorry, uh, it caught me by surprise. I thought we had a couple more seconds. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, we've got a few minutes left for this show uh, and then we will let you get out there. But you are going to want to hear about this. Um, a paper which was published uh, very recently in Aquatic, Cons uh, Aquatic Conservation Marine and Freshwater Ecosystems uh, by Graham Edgar, Trevor Ward and Rick Stewart-Smith. These are people from the University of Tasmania and the University of Technology, Sydney, exploiting the data which has been... Well, using the data very wisely that, that has been gathered over the last 10 years or so from reef... Life, the Reef Life Survey, which we've talked about a number of times on this program. Mm. And this is where these people, spearheaded by Graham Edgar, have set this up, where scientists, citizen scientists, people who like to get in the water, dive, are trained on how to collect data, how to, how to swim along a transect and how to look in a methodical fashion and note down the species that they are seeing, whether they are rock lobsters, abalone, or, many, or any of the species of fish. Um, let's now move to fisheries and the amount of fish that we take out of the water to eat, those numbers have been... The, the amount of catch that's been taken has declined by about oh, 30%, we know, over the last 10 years or so. The government is still saying that we have sustainable fisheries and they are particularly saying this as we move towards reimagining our marine protected areas. Well, the government is reimagining them by, in fact, contracting them. So Graham Edgar and others are yelling about this at the top of their voices, not unreasonably, saying that we can't be doing this when we are getting data from this reef life survey, which is independent of fisheries catches, mm. saying that we are getting, that we have a, a dramatic drop. Over the last 10 years, it's clear that we have about only, we've got about 31, 32% drop in total biomass of large reef fishes, and by reef, I don't just mean coral reef, I mean all the rocky reefs that we have around the country, which is where we have most of our fish biomass, that that is consistent, a consistent figure with what we're seeing from the reduced catches that the, that the fishes are taking. And it puts to bed any question around any uh, maybe agenda or reason why those figures of a 30% drop might be related to something else. If you've got a completely different purpose for collecting these data and they actually correlate with that same amount of drop. That's right, Bron. Yeah. yeah. So this is really important to have this, this independent set of data which is gathered by citizen scientists, yep. by anybody, by professional divers, as well, professional scientists yeah. as well. Because sometimes those questions get raised. It's like, oh, well, the reason why they're reporting a 30% drop is... A whole bunch of other reasons which might have a you know political uh, driver, but in something like this, it, it rules that out. Yeah, it does. And if you look in marine protected areas, because many of these surveys have also been done in marine protected areas as well as most of them outside marine protected areas, because most of our surf, most of our sea is not a marine protected area. But when you look inside the marine protected areas, guess what? Fish numbers go up mm. have in the last ten years. And again, yeah, we've talked about this a lot on the program how marine protected areas are fantastic sheltered nurseries for fish to go in and 
deposit their eggs, have them fertilised, all the babies grow up happy and protected and then some of them will leave mm. and they will in fact seed the areas where fishes are going in. But we need many more marine protected areas. And so, for example, they point out in this article in the conversation and um, so I encourage people to, to have a look at this article. Um, it appeared on June the 7th and its authors are Graham Edgar and Trevor Ward. Um, they say that with the... Um, for example, the, the temperate east zone covering waters from the Victorian border to southern Queensland includes no new no, um, no new no-take reserves shallower than 1,000 metres. So there is, in the face of these data that we're seeing reduced numbers of fish, there is nothing on the table as far as the government is concerned about putting forward more no-take areas. Mm. And in fact, what they're doing is proposing that in the Coral Sea, for example, that the no-take area is reduced dramatically. This is after conf uh, conversations that they've had with stakeholders, aka fishermen, um, the fishers, which, you know, we all eat fish. I love eating fish. We all do. It's a very important resource for us all, but... Well, not all of us. Vegetarians and vegans Well, don't. that's right, yes, but for, you know, human beings... That are general, not vegetarians That are not vegetarians or vegans, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that, this is just a, a cry saying that we need more marine protected areas. Yeah, and no one's... I don't think any... Well, again, no absolutes, but it's... it's <laughs> The evidence is there, how important they are. What I'm really interested to see develop, and I know we're rapidly running out of time, but is the concept of biodiversity corridors underwater, and it's something that has been established on land. As always, we're about 20 to 30 years behind in terms of our appreciation for the needs of the aquatic environment that are just as important as the terrestrial, but it's that whole out of mind, out of or out of sight, out of mind principle that applies. And I'm hopeful that in years to come, once we actually establish more marine protected areas as pockets of yeah, space underwater, that we can actually maybe look at the possibility of having a corridor that connects them. That's a really important point, isn't it? As you said, we, we do that a lot on what we have done it on land with, with great success and why not start doing this in the water? I don't know if that's on the table at all. I doubt it. Something for the future. Yeah, you a, have to put it in a, in a submission, Bron. A good note to end this Radio program. Radio Marinara will. Always hopeful. Yes. Always hopeful. Thanks, Dr Beach. It's a pleasure. It's been a great program today. Very interesting and something for everyone. As always, on next week's program, John's going to be here with us as will Rex, possibly Terry, depending on whether she's diving or not. The giant cuddles in Wyala in South Australia are starting to do their thing. So all our diving enthusiasts will possibly be uh, heading from Spider Crab Central to Giant Cuddle <laughs> Central. We'll see whether we can get Terry on the line, possibly AJ. He's heading out that way as well. And thanks to all our guests today, Bonnie Dalton from the Low Light Festival and Dave Donnelly from uh, Killer Whales Australia. Thank you, Kent, very much. He's been our panel beater for us today. Thank you, Dr Beach. If I already said that, thank you again if I did. Stay tuned for radiotherapy. I'm not sure who's here. They're in the green room. They'll come in and talk all things medical until 11 when Dr Shane, who is already here, will take you through to 11 for his wonderful program. I'm Steiner Gogo. I'm off to Megahertz training. Go the mighty Megahertz. Catch Two weeks' time. Very exciting. Yes, Community Cup. Down to Victoria Park. Get your ticket. $20. They're selling rapidly. Yeah, like hotcakes. Yeah. Do hotcakes sell rapidly? I don't know. They do. They do. They do. It's <laughs> particularly this time of year. When it's cold, foggy, <laughs> down at the footy, there's going to be lots of hotcakes. <laughs>
No, they won't. There'll be other stuff, though. All right. And streakers. <laughs> Let's hope there's streakers this year. They're no, not going to no, 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 no streakers. All right. Uh, <laughs> talk to you next week. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.